out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist, Andy Black Sugar member or probably founder of Black Sugar Transmission, the Brooklyn-based post-punk band, and also is currently with KMFDM, has played with Pete Murphy, and has been in a lot of other projects besides, and has got a very prolific um, output on uh, Bandcamp, which we will find out more about later, but I won't spoil too much. But after several minutes of casual chat, as you do to get each, to get to know each other, it's showbiz. We got down to that exciting subject that was life, love, poetry, all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, after um, after that, we got down to that very interesting subject that was the early formative years. Andy, it's over to you. Yeah. Well, I definitely became obsessed with it when I was turning 12. Um, I, I noticed music a lot of times in my life before that. There were moments I remember music really moving me or making the hair on my neck stand up. Um, it was usually just passing things like hearing a song in the car. Um, my mom played a lot of classical music around the house. Um, but when I turned 12, that was when music was all of a sudden, it was like, <clears throat> like, this is all I care about now. It was just a hormonal thing. I don't know what it was. It was like over here. Um, that's, that's about uh, the seventh grade when you're yes. 12 or 13. So, um, you know, it was sort of like, uh, it was the moment when I graduated from just being a kid that was into monsters and dinosaurs and Star Wars and being suddenly like a rock fan and just yes. being obsessed with bands. And so, yeah, I mean, I remember hearing, I, I remember, you know, like having the radio on under the covers in bed um, and, and listening to these stations that were playing things like Led Zeppelin. And, you know, I remember hearing a whole lot of love and, uh, uh, you know, smoke on the water and highway to hell and these things. My dad was a minister, a Baptist minister. So this music, I, I knew that I was not supposed to be listening to this music. Um, so there was kind of a forbidden quality to it. But at the same time, I was just so excited by the sound of the guitars. Um, and I started to really just crave that sound. I wanted to hear bands that had really loud, rowdy guitars going full time. Yeah. You know, so, and what was um, what and what was that particular period? What was that what was that year or well, decade? Well, part of the decade that you Well this this is the eighties, but I was sort of I was sort of fascinated with with 70s bands, bands that really made, kind of made their bones in the 70s. So Queen was the first one for me. And Queen was not cool in the United States in the 80s. Like, no. um, they were just their, I, I think their last tour of the States was in 1982. Um, so it was before my time, um, before my, my concert attending time. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, I remember being in, in seventh grade and we had a pep rally one Friday afternoon. A pep rally is just sort of this weird thing where they, they, they let the kids out of class early and they all go to the, 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 uh, the gymnasium and sit in the bleacher seats. And there's a lot of rah, rah, rah for the team that's going to play that night. And there's, you know, the marching band is there and there's cheerleaders and I, I didn't know what was going on, but they had a, a rock band, like some weird cover band there. And I don't know what they played except for this one song, which was another one bites the dust. Right. And I think that it was because that song is just, is such a spare groove that it probably sounded better than anything else in a gymnasium, you know, cause it's just got a lot of space and it's very simple. Yeah, and it just knocked me over. So, I just became a huge Queen fan, and then, like I said, I kind of, I kind of like became obsessed with other bands in that era: Black Sabbath, ACDC, Aerosmith, and I just was gradually 
kind of drawn more and more towards the the heavy side of things. So uh, eventually that led me to like actual heavy metal bands that like yes. identified as heavy metal, you know. Because it's interesting. Metallica's and so on. Because in um, in the eighties, Queen in the UK had sort of they they had sort of lost their kind of mojo and also their direction. And I know they had a bit of an issue because they at the time there was this big thing about bands playing in South Africa because of apartheid, mm -hmm. and they were one of those bands who went, "Oh, we don't care, we just want the money." And it was like, "Wow, that's that's a bit tricky." And also, I know in America, and this is what I believe that the video "I Want to Break Free," where they all dressing up as old women didn't go down, or young women, but peculiar. Um, it didn't go down very well with those kind of sort of men. It was sort of confused a lot of people and went, hmm, not sure about this band. Well, I, I know that, I don't remember the first time I saw that video, but it was definitely not when it was new. Um, but I didn't know that it was, I, I'm not familiar with the, the TV show that they're spoofing, right? They're spoofing a, a British, series well, they might be i can't i don't know actually i just remember uh, coronation street is that oh is that right coronation street yes that could be that okay could be so one. like if you know so to me it's like what are they doing like <laughs> why are they dressed as why are they dressed as these weird characters i just didn't understand the reference so i think americans probably just didn't get the reference and it just seemed kind of odd um but uh i yeah, I don't. I, I think that uh, that heavy metal was so popular in the '80s in the United States that Queen was just sort of, you know, I want to break free and body language and these kind of songs were just kind of seen as like, I mean, maybe weak tea for for you know a rock band, but at the same time, I think Queen also were confused as to why we love Michael Jackson so much, but we didn't love. We, we didn't love their Hot Space album, which was very much like a, a kind of, I don't know, like a, a funky, of its time kind of album. It just didn't, it just didn't wash in the United States. So I guess Freddie, you know, being so proud, he, he just decided to, to boycott America after, after the yes. failure of that album. And, well, I also yeah. think that was when Freddie started getting really into his nightclub and, and that kind of scene. But then bizarrely, the, that bass rift of um, uh, Another One Bites Dust became so popular with the hip hop community, didn't it? You know, the rap community just sampled that to death. And it was like, wow, that is just one of, you know, I think it was Grandmaster Flash, wasn't he, who, who decided to take that rift and, and work it. And it did, you know, it was so iconic, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Well, I know that, I know that the, the riff, the riff that that song was really kind of ripping off was um, was the chic one, um, good times. Yes, and and that's that riff was was sampled a lot in Curtis Blow and um, uh, Grandmaster Flash and Sugar Hill Gang and all those guys. So they probably they probably grabbed uh, another one bites the dust too. It's just a good, it's just a good solid. Like I said. When I heard it for the first time, it just translated. It's just a great riff. But I mean, it's funny that that was the that was the song that kind of turned me into a, a guitar freak because it doesn't really have a lot of guitar in it. Yes. Uh, but I think it was just the power of the riff. I wanted to hear more riffs. Yes. Well, also you don't don't forget that during the eighties, we, we, when your formative years, you did have Van Halen and Beat It by Michael Jackson. That was kind of probably on sort of heavy rotation on the hour, every hour, really, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, we all waited for that moment in the song. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So when did you get your guitar? When did it happen? Well, I was an avid air guitarist for a couple of years. So, um, yeah, I, I was just, I, I was completely obsessed with guitar, but I didn't really think that I would be able to play it. Um, it's kind of seemed to me like a like an athletic thing um, and I was like a really scrawny little kid and all the pictures I saw of guitar players they all had like muscly arms and veins and like I was like this little runt so I didn't think I'd be able to play but I kind of stumbled upon a guitar um, in my grandmother's uh, closet one day and I picked it up and I remember just really quickly figuring out a couple simple riffs 
probably another one bites the dust was one of them. Um, smoke on the water, simple things, you know, just things that you could play with single notes on one string. And I just thought, I want to keep doing this. I want to take this home and keep playing it. And I, I was 14 at that time, and I talked my parents into getting me an electric guitar when I was 15, when I turned 15. So I kind of fumbled around. I'm left-handed also. So I kind of fumbled around playing this right-handed acoustic guitar upside down for nine months or something, and eventually figured out the strings had to go the other way. And, you know, I learned how to play some power chords and, and just a, a handful of riffs or whatever. When I got the electric guitar, I, would, I turned 15, and one of the provisos of the agreement was that I would take lessons. So I, I did take lessons when I got my electric guitar, and I learned just some basic stuff, just bar chords and the pentatonic scale and stuff like that. It didn't last very long because I was kind of, I was moving so quickly on my own at home, just yeah. teaching myself that the lessons kind of seemed redundant and the teacher was trying to get me to do sight reading, which I had no interest in. So, uh, yeah, I was, I was 15 and, uh, you know, God bless my parents for, for allowing me to. So when, know, when did you sort play. of, when did you get the first band together? Uh, really quickly. Uh, I, I remember, um, I remember meeting a couple of guys who were brothers that I'm still friends with who happened to conveniently play drums and bass. So we were basically all in the same experience level. We'd all been playing for just months, really. And we got together and started to jam and we would just play whatever rudimentary covers we, we could manage, you know, heavy metal tunes, really. So uh, Paranoid um uh breaking the law you know the classics yeah yeah tunes that aren't that hard um so we just we just played whatever we could and we didn't have a singer so it was all instrumental i didn't really play in a proper band that was professional until i was like 18 i think and I, i i just joined a cover band and just kind of got out there and got some experience playing around a little bit um but uh yeah i started writing songs almost immediately as well that was another thing that i i intuitively learned that these tunes that i was learning on the guitar were all kind of made up of the same stuff you know it was kind of like well these guys are all using the same chords and starting to notice that certain chords fit together in a way that works like why can't i make up my own combinations of chords and yes so, yeah, so immediately started just making up my own songs, my own riffs. Um, you know, uh, I think I even wrote some some dodgy lyrics to some of them. Um, but, yeah, I, I was out playing in bands uh, professionally by the time I was 18. And, you know, it was uh, where I grew up was not really a huge... Um, it's not like a huge cultural um, mecca. I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So it didn't take me too long before I realized that I needed to move away from there. <laughs> so, so I came to New York City. But I played in a number of bands there first. And I, I, I played long enough there to, to see where the ceiling was and that I needed to get out. Yes. Uh, and was it the and, case then that then that you became sort of quite a a go-to guitarist during that you know when you went to New York? Um, yeah, when I came to New York, I didn't really I I didn't have any kind of a plan whatsoever. Um, I knew I was going to be playing my guitar and I was going to be doing music, um, but I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any kind of um, career path that I was. Um, trying to um, lay out for myself. I just wanted to see what happened here. And I had a feeling that good things would happen for me here. Um, but really what I did was I kind of, I, I did a little bit of gun for hire type stuff in the beginning and just played in various bands around just locally, 
just so I could figure out the city and figure out what are the good venues and where does where does a cool band play in New York, you know? And so I, at the time, those venues were places like uh, CBGB's and Luna Lounge and Continental and Don Hills. And even the limelight was still hanging on at that point. And uh, I'm lucky enough to have played there before they turned into a mall or whatever they turned into. Yeah. Um, but I, I did my own bands here for probably six years before I started doing kind of more pro touring type stuff. When I started playing with Peter Murphy and, uh, and now KMFDM, I wasn't really, I, I wasn't really intending to be like a gun for hire. I think my, my dream was to just do my own music and just focus on that completely. But you know, for me to be able to make a living as a musician in New York City, I had to dip my toe into different waters and yeah. start playing with other people and getting paid. And, you know, I've always done like guitar lessons. That was probably the first thing that I, I learned I could do to make money on a like a real consistent day to day basis. Um, so I started teaching guitar lessons here right away doing a little bit of the gun for hire thing. And then just as my skill sets have, you know, increased over the years with learning how to do digital recording and uh, all the skills that come along with that, I've parlayed that into uh, work for myself and I've gotten my, my own tunes licensed for use in TV shows and stuff like that. So it's turned into this pie that's sliced in like, you know, 18 different, <laughs> uh pieces and each one of those slices is like a little income stream yes um but yeah i i think the first uh kind of famous gig that i did was peter murphy and that was in 2013 so i moved here in the late 90s and i kind of did my own thing for a number of years uh and played locally and did some touring around like uh you know in europe and stuff with kind of smaller bands stuff that wasn't uh really making any money but it was just kind of punk rock low to the ground kind of touring yes um, and how did you i mean the peter murphy because he's such a cult artist isn't he in, in the uk with Bauhaus and obviously in europe and probably got a very big following in america and then you know they had their kind of moment and then he becomes a sort of amazingly successful solo artist as well so how did you manage to find and get that particular gig? Um, a mutual friend, I think, got an email uh, saying, Peter Murphy needs a guitar player right away. Do you know anyone? And so this mutual friend, um, I think, sent, sent some videos of me on YouTube or something, and Peter's people got in touch and said, can you, can you like drop everything and come out here in three days? And was that in Turkey? It wasn't in Turkey. No, he was, um, he was doing a short tour, just a five date tour in California in, um, October of, uh, 2013. And I guess his guitar player up till then had quit or was fired on just really short notice. And, he was doing this tour that he was calling Mr. Moonlight and it was all Bauhaus tunes. So it wasn't Peter Murphy solo music. It was basically like straight Bauhaus for the whole show. And so uh, I guess he liked me. He liked the videos he saw. He thought I was a good fit and they offered me the job. And I just basically learned 30 Bauhaus songs in three days. <laughs> so and got on a plane. And how, do you, how do you go about that? You think, oh, right, I've said yes, now I've got to do it. I mean, you have three days, you look at the catalogue. As a guitarist, what, what's the sort of, what do you do for those next, you know, that, that next few days? Well, luckily, I was kind of prepared for this because I learned how to play guitar by learning songs by ear. I mean, when I was a teenager, all I ever did was play along to albums. So, I mean, I, to this day, I, I can play 
dozens and dozens of albums from start to finish. So I've got a good ear. Um, having said that, learning 30 songs in three days is a little bit challenging. Apologies for the traffic here. Um, so what I did was I, I, I thought, well, 30 songs, three days, that's 10 songs a day. So I, I basically just focused on 10 songs for the first day. I focused on 10 other songs on the second day and then recapped the, the ones from the day before, hoping that they seeped into my brain overnight while I was sleeping. Did the same thing on the third day, learned 10 more songs, um, basically listened to the music on the, on the plane on my way over there. And then we had, we had a couple of rehearsals. So we had two rehearsals um, at a lockout studio in LA. And then the show, the first show was the next day after that. So, yes, well, that's amazing. And did it? And and obviously that was your first time with the band. Does it? How does it sort of feel? Do you? You know, is it one of those cases that you have to just walk in and think, let's hope this is a good vibe? Yeah, it's like let's hope, let's hope it's a good vibe. Like I didn't know anything about the guys in the band. I mean, I, I Peter's obviously I was a fan. I was a Bauhaus fan. Um, I was, I was a casual Peter Murphy solo fan. Um, and I was really excited about playing the Bauhaus tunes with him. I mean, it was really like, I mean, for me as a guitar player, it was, I was kind of, and I haven't, I, I didn't talk about this already, but you know, I was kind of a heavy metal kid early on, but I, I totally got into the post punk thing next, you know, so I was really a fan of. Uh, John McGeoch and um, Daniel Ash and Robert Smith and Robin Guthrie and all those players. So I was excited about it. I, I felt confident that I could do a really good job. So I, I just prepared as well as I could. And the guys in the band were really nice and really accommodating. Um, but the thing that you don't, that you don't count on, is that the band has gotten used to the way the old guitar player played. Yes. So, so the guy that was in the band before me had his own way of playing these tunes. And whether that was right or wrong is kind of not really material because the band was used to hearing the songs that way night after night. So now there's this new guy coming in. And I'm, I'm going straight from the recording. So I'm listening to the original recording of Double Dare and the original recording of Bella Lugosi is Dead. And I'm trying to really, like, copy the nuances. And meanwhile, the band has gotten used to hearing this other kind of version of those songs yes. as played by their, gu their guitar player. So you basically have to be ready to just change things up on the fly um maybe they want me to uh strum the chords instead of arpeggiate them because they want me to make more noise so i sort of go in there thinking yeah i've got this like i've got all the details worked out and then sometimes they're just like yeah i don't do that <laughs> do this <laughs> other thing instead and you just have to go with it and you know i had cheat sheets you know which i was using at the rehearsals and I was kind of reducing them as, as we went along so that I would have shorter and shorter cheat sheets to look at. Um, obviously, you know, I don't want to be looking at cheat sheets on stage. Um, but I, I had, I had them there for certain cues and things that I felt like I needed and yeah, but they were great. And Peter was really like, he's like, don't worry about it. He's like, if, if the first show is a total disaster, it's fine. I don't even care. <laughs> yes. So, well, he, but, he, he, yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say there was. An, it was quite a good documentary we had a few months ago, or probably years now. They called. I think it was called The Side Men, and it was. It was looking at people like Earl Slick and those kind of you know guitarists, keyboard players, even the backing vocalists, people who who were sort of like twenty feet from the from the mic, but they added so much. But at the same time, they were the people who were sort of giving that singer or the writer. The, the sort of spotlight. So you you obviously have to sort of accommodate that kind of position, you know, within the within the dynamic of the band, don't you? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely in that position. I'm definitely not like the artist, you know. I'm I'm there to, um, to to fill a role that's pretty specific. Um, so, I mean, I I think I'm pretty good at um, keeping true to the the original um, the original vibe of a song, but throwing in a little bit of my own stink. You know, so yeah. like I can I can get a little of my own kind of essence in there, but uh, yeah, it's it's the kind of thing where this show is not about me. Like the audience doesn't give a rat's ass who's playing guitar. They came to see Peter Murphy. They're hoping that he's going to uh, be in a good mood and play and and sing his ass off. And the rest of the band. It's sort of like it could be anybody as long as long as it's not terrible, you know, yes, I think, I that, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I, I think I think I've seen the movie you're talking about. Um, and yeah, it's kind of uh, it's kind of an interesting place to be because, you know, if you're playing this kind of music, which is, you know, rock music is very like expressing yourself. It's not it's not like classical music where it's like you need to play this to the letter you need to play this piece and this solo to the letter right down to which way your your bow is going across the strings you know um rock music is very much like yeah man i i have my style and my look and my vibe and my sound and so as a rock musician to kind of be like that type of gun for hire to uh, to, to play that kind of role it's sort of like straddling um that thing of being an artist, but also just being uh, like a craftsman that's just showing up and and really providing a service. Yes. And how does that, I mean, just with the Peter Murphy, did you then, because did you also then tour with him and do his solo work as well? Yeah. Yeah. So we did, um, th that five day tour in California went really well. And so uh, he invited me to stay on and, and do, um, more stuff in uh, far-flung locations, like uh, we went to Russia, China, Australia, and New Zealand, and did that Bauhaus show uh, over there. So that was like another 15 dates. And then the following year, he put out his uh, last solo album, Lion. And we, we did a tour uh, supporting that album in 2014. So yeah, that was more focused on Lion and other Peter Murphy solo tunes. Um, I think we did one or two Bauhaus songs in that set. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And then, you know, I mean, before just talking about the band, is it the case that you sometimes, you know, looking at great partnerships in music, do you sort of feel with yourself, you know, that does kind of add so much, you know, I mean, I was a massive Smiths fan, so I loved Morrissey and Marr, then obviously you had all the Keith Richards and Mick Jagger and, you know, a lot of people, you know, like McCartney, Lennon, etc. you know, a lot of double act. Do you sort of, with yourself, do you sort of realize there's quite a lot to be gained by sort of being in a partnership with somebody creatively? I think so. I mean, especially with those examples that you named, I mean, there's obviously something like combustible that happens when the two correct people are, are put together in the same room. But I think that those kind of things are also really rare. Yes. <laughs> um, I've personally, I've personally never experienced it. I've never had that kind of partnership. I mean, in my early <clears throat> days being in bands, I remember thinking that it was just, every band was just this beautiful democracy where everyone had their role. And there was just this kind of everybody pitches in and does their part. And it just never worked out like that. And I, as a result, I became very um, autonomous and I, I learned how to, to write songs and record them by myself because I, I thought the results were much less compromised that way. So I took more of like a, a Trent Reznor type of approach to it. But yeah, I mean, partnerships, I think in terms of Peter Murphy, like I never, I never really wrote anything with Peter. So I never understood. I never knew whether we would have had that kind of thing. Um, but he obviously had that with Daniel Ash. Yeah. 
This is true. Yeah. And then when you sort of got the gig with the band, KM, FDM, so what's that kind of relationship and partnership like? Um, that's a completely different situation. Um, it, it was similar in the sense, I mean, the, the similarities are that we kind of have a little bit of overlap in the markets. I mean, Peter Murphy fans and KMFDM fans know each other. <laughs> I think that, I think there's, there's a lot of people that probably like both bands and we play the same kind of venues and have the same size audiences and stuff. But as far as like, <clears throat> like from a band point of view, from a professional point of view, KMFDM is really different. Um, I was basically welcomed in as a band member instantly. And it was the same situation as Peter Murphy. They needed somebody on really short notice. I had one week this time to learn the show. Um, and, uh, but the difference was that, um, Sasha, who's kind of the ringleader of KMFDM, he was in touch with me directly and he was checking in every day and he would call me on the phone from Germany. And I could tell that he really just wanted to get to know me. And, you know, there, there was this incredibly welcoming feeling in the band when we convened in Chicago and started the tour. And um, I think we were probably three days into the tour when Sasha asked if I'd be interested in writing an album together after the tour was over. So it immediately became this thing of, we like you, we want to make music with you. Um, as long, you know, basically they said, as long as you want to keep playing with us, we want you to stay. So, you know, we did this tour of the States. This was three years ago. Um, we recorded some of the shows and put out a live album from that tour. So, a year after I joined the band, I'm I'm already on a KMFDM album, which is a live album, and I'm on the cover. <laughs> um, and then we wrote an album together called Paradise, which uh, you know was very much a, a collaborative back and forth type of thing. Um, we're all spread out, so Sasha and Lucia live in Hamburg, Germany. I live here in Brooklyn. Our, our drummer Andy Selway lives in Florida. So it was very much a, a, you know, a Dropbox or a WeTransfer uh, collaboration, you know, file sharing. Um, but it was very harmonious and very back and forth. And um, I, I think I think that it's I think Sasha, you know, he's the driving force of the band, and he always has been. And I think all the ideas kind of begin and end with him but he really loves collaborators and he's had a lot of different collaborators kind of like come into the fold over the years, whether they're, you know, just in the band unofficially or um, just doing guest appearances or whatever. Um, I think he likes that colorful aspect where there's just all these different vocalists and uh, instrumentalists and uh, spoken word artists that are popping up around the catalog. Yeah. And did you, I mean, with that, is that something that you can see is going to continue on for the next, well, foreseeable future? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think it's, um, I think it's a really great situation um, for, for me. I, I was a fan. I was a longtime fan of that band. And um, I was really amazed at how well taken care of I was just in every way. I mean, financially and then on a, you know, um, on a personal level, um, on a creative level, there's really, I, I have absolutely nothing to lose by, you know, carrying on with this band. Um, the only thing that's holding us back right now is COVID-19. You know, we mm -hmm. were supposed to um, we were supposed to tour Europe in the spring and then we had a whole U.S. run with ministry books, which, you know, got scuppered as well. And so this was going to be a big year for us. And, um, you know, we're just kind of sitting at home now, kind of waiting it out. And the question is, how long of a wait is that going to be? Um, but uh, 
I think that we're, you know, in, in lieu of doing live shows, we're going to carry on making music. Um, you know, we've, we've put, we've just put out a, a remix album called in dub, which is, uh, dub reworkings of a lot of KMFDM tunes. And, um, so that's now the third record that I've played on in this band in three years. So there's a really strong kind of work ethic in this band. So I think that if we end up not being able to tour for another year, we're probably going to start working on another record at some point. And, do you, and, and with this kind of strange position state that we're in, how has that affected you kind of emotionally and also creatively? Because a few people I spoke to have said, it's been, I suppose they'd done their album and tour last year and it was like, oh, that was fantastic because we were expecting to have this year to kind of recover. And then other people were just about to release and had this kind of plan. It's like, oh, that's all been scuppered. So they're obviously feeling really discombobulated. How do you, how, how are you sort of finding it? I think I've fared pretty well overall. I mean, I'm really disappointed that we weren't able to tour, but... I, um, I'm, I'm kind of, um, I'm kind of a stay inside and work on music kind of person anyway. And when, when this first hit in March, you know, it was still winter time here and I was still kind of hibernating anyway. I've basically just kind of ramped up the, the, um, the recording side of things. So I do my own music under the name Black Sugar Transmission. Um, I'm about to put out the third album this year under that band name. Um, and then I've been doing all these instrumental albums as well. So I've just been really busy uh, writing and recording stuff at home. I'm putting out at least one album a month. Um, so it's been like this really fruitful creative time for me. And of course, you know, I, I miss... I miss socializing and going out. I mean, I live in New York City. Part of the reason I live here is because I love, um, I love going to bars and I love dance floors and I love, you know, socializing. So um, I'm 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 missing that. But um, you know, as far as like working, I'm totally fine because yes. I'm still doing my guitar lessons on on uh, FaceTime and Zoom and stuff like that, and I'm doing recording work and I've got my Patreon and I'm just basically uh, focusing on those angles and I'm not spending much money either because of all this. So I've got that kind of like that, that. Um, so with the, with, know, the, with the stuff that you put out on Bandcamp, do you sort of find that you've kind of created quite a good community that that's kind of got, gives you a consistent sort of audience and, you know, a certain amount of financial sort of income from. Absolutely. I mean, Bandcamp really changed everything for me as far as like putting my own music out. The first time I made money on my own music was when I put a record out on Bandcamp. Um, and it was just like a huge revelation to me. I think that it's a really great platform for artists. Um, they pay out the highest percentage of all the platforms. Um, it's free. You don't have to pay to set up a page. Um, you can uh, you can set your own price. You can have um, pe people are free to pay more if they want. So, for instance, I did um, one of the things I did over the summer as one of my my COVID nineteen projects was I covered uh, Garbage's first album. Yes, I saw. You know, you remember that one? Oh, so, God, yes. um, so I'm, I'm not really in a position where I, I, I can, I can uh, charge people money for that because I didn't write those songs. So, you know, I put it on Bandcamp for free, but of course people were throwing money at me for it because they wanted to. So that's the cool thing about Bandcamp is that people can listen to the whole thing first. Um, they can support you. Um, they can support you more if they want. They can pay you a hundred dollars for your album if they want. So yeah, it's been great. Bandcamp has been really good, and they're doing this first Friday of every month where they're waiving their revenue share, which means the band or the artist gets a hundred percent of of the sales for the day. 
So I've been using that as um, a motivator to put something out every month on that yes. day. And, and compared to Pledge, because I'd sort of done some interviews with people on Pledge or who had got the album, they got the money and then it all goes. So they've had that thing of actually still wanting to give the fans the, the album or the CD or vinyl, but they're going to be completely out of money because the pledge kind of went down and it all sort of took the cash with them and they just would feel too crap not to kind of um, basically give give the people what they signed up for, even though, you know, that wasn't the band's fault that the, the people just kind of didn't run the business that brilliantly. So, um, so Bandcamp sounds like the most opposite to the pledge, really. Yeah, well, there, I don't know much about Pledge, but um, I know there's so many ways to go about it now. And I'm not really interested in the whole thing of asking people for money first. Um, I, I'm able to keep my overhead really low because I, I do all my records here at home. Um, I basically pay for um, mastering and manufacturing. And if anything, I'll do a, a, a pre-order type of thing, um, which I've been able to do on my website. So Bandcamp has sort of, you know, after putting out a number of releases on Bandcamp, I decided to put some of my music out just directly on my website and do pre-orders. Um, but that's still a pretty straightforward arrangement. It's like you've basically bought this album ahead of time and you're going to get that album and that's it. That's, you know, that's yes. the whole deal. He keeps it. Um, so look, just talking then, it's about one of our favourite albums of all time, Motorhead's um, Overkill, just briefly. How did that, and, and what was the kind of, when did you sort of have the light bulb minute and moment and think, right, I'm going to cover a classic rock album by one of the greatest bands of all time? Because that's quite an undertaking, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I had, I had done a couple of full album covers before, <clears throat> and I was... Um, I was kind of in the mood to do something else, but I, I just put the, I, I kind of put the, the open question out there on Instagram. And I said, if I were to cover another album, um, what would you like to hear? And I got a lot of answers that were kind of like a little too on the nose, like Duran Duran or The Cure or something that would be like really in my wheelhouse. Um, like I kind of already make music that's kind of in that vein. And one of my friends suggested Overkill, and I was like, that's perfect, because I can do something with that. I can, I th there's no point in my trying to, to sound like Lemmy, that's just completely not gonna happen. Um, and because my music is more electronic, I have this opportunity to see what I can do with these kind of grungy, garagey, punky, you know, heavy metal anthems. And I have an opportunity creatively to, to, to see what those songs might sound like in, a, in really different clothes, you know? So, and of course I was already, you know, a huge fan of, of that band. And I like that it's a tight album and it's pretty much all the songs on it are classics. And, um, and it wouldn't be hard for me to learn the songs because they're all relatively simple. Yes. Um, it's not like, you know, if somebody said, yeah, learn, um, Tales of Topographic Oceans or something. <laughs> I'd be like, no, I don't think, um, I think that's a little out of my pay grade. <laughs> oh, God, I even bought that album once. God, I was very young. Oh, yeah. My brother, my older brother was really into prog rock and I had slightly followed in his footsteps when I was young. So, um, yeah, uh -huh. so, so with, with those, you know, you did 10 songs on that album, just kind of briefly, which, which was the one that you, you particularly enjoyed doing? Because there's a couple of real favourites of mine, obviously Overkill, but Stay Clean and Damage Case. But were there any particular ones that you really enjoyed and thought, yeah, that was a good one? I would have to listen to it again. I mean, I, I, I mean Overkill itself, you know, because it was... I basically went, I, I, I attacked the songs in the order that they appear in the album. So the first song I recorded was Overkill. And to me, you know, it's sort of, as, as much as it's kind of a speed metal anthem, uh, I immediately saw it as this hard techno thing, that it could be like this, you know, this kind of, um, the, this really aggressive um, electronic 
thing. And that was when I knew that this thing was going to work, you know, when I started working on that song. And um, so I don't know. I think it was just overkill itself. Yes. And um, I, I really threw everything, including the kitchen sink, into that one. <laughs> no, it's, and how long just and how long did it take from sort of starting to finishing that project? Oh, I, I did that in a very, very short period of time. I think I did. I think I, I finished it in less less than a week for sure. Um, I was basically doing a song or two songs a day. That is really fast. That is fast. So look, just then, lastly, what, what if you could say something to a, I mean, you're not that old, actually. This often works better with older people. But if you could have said something to your 18-year-old self, what would it be? Or what sort of advice have you got that, that you've picked up over the decades that you thought, oh, yes, I didn't know that when I was 18. I just kind of, because it's always a curious one, what people have learned. You know, because obviously being in music is not the easiest career, is it? Let's face it. And, and it's all very random and you've really got to want it and anything can happen. And a lot of it's down to luck and timing. And then you just think, wow. But also making those decisions and, you know, some are good and some are not so good. So I just wondered which, what, what advice you would have wanted to give yourself starting out. I don't think I would have taken any advice. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think anybody could have steered me away from my path. And I think my path, I, I don't think I made any big mistakes. Um, I think I just learned everything as I went along and, and there's no way to learn those lessons quicker. Um, you know, if I, if I could, if I could, um, I don't know. Maybe I would tell myself um, to to be op more open to uh, experiences that are not the exact uh, definition of your your dream situation. Uh, I think I, I think when I was eighteen, I was thinking like, yeah, I'm just going to be in my band, and we're just going to be famous, and uh, I. I you know, the rubber had yet to hit the road as far as like becoming an adult and learning how to make a living at music. So I kind of had to learn gradually, like I, I, I have to, uh, I have to be a little bit more malleable if I want to make a living as a musician. I can't just be this intransigent artiste, you know, like with my own vision that has to be uh, a certain way. Uh, otherwise I'm, you know, uh, I'm not interested. I think I, I would have just told myself to to try to be a little bit more um, open to playing in different kinds of musical situations. I eventually learned that. I mean, but I think that uh, I think I probably wouldn't have taken my own advice, honestly. Yes. But it's interesting because I did an interview with a producer the other week, Mark. Saunders and he'd worked with lots of people you know including he did the David Bowie Mick Jagger single Dancing in the Street then he worked with um, people he worked with loads like even The Cure and then Tricky and then sure. and lots and lots and anyway he did a, a work, bit of work with Marilyn Manson he said it was quite interesting that bit because he said sometimes working with American musicians they're almost too good you you want to say let's try something and they go no that doesn't work with that and it's like I'm I know that probably doesn't, but let's just try it. Let's, and he's, you know, because he said a lot of people are just so well-schooled in music. But then, and it was interesting that point, because he said one of the guitarists, you know, full of LA rock god tattoos, picked up this acoustic guitar and started playing this amazing bluegrass. And he was like, blimey. And this guy obviously went, oh, you didn't expect that. And he said, well, I used to work, I was the guitarist with Katie Lang for a while. And it was a bit like, oh, fuck, I didn't. Wow. Okay, I didn't see that one come in. Marilyn, you know, Katie Lang, you know, Ma Marilyn Manson. So I guess a lot of people do have to just become quite adaptable for the next gig and paycheck, really. Yeah, and and I think that um, I think that ultimately that serves you really well as a musician too. I think I've I've I it, it's been a really edifying thing for me to be able to 
learn enough of different styles to be able to acclimate to different musical situations. Um, and I think that that's served my own music really well. And, and it's made, it, I think it's, it's one of those things where even if you are, your particular wheelhouse is, is, is here, you know, if you learn stuff over to the left of that or to the right of it, it's gonna, it's gonna sort of contribute to, to, to what you do as well. So, um, yeah, I think, I think when I was 18, I was probably, uh, I was probably a little bit more narrow-minded about music and, um, but, you know, and then I wasn't. So I think that it was just sort of a, you, you just have to, you have to let the doors open when they open and you can't force them. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, I heard that interview by the way, cause I, I, I recognized his name from Cure Credits. Right. And uh, I, I was fascinated by his story about, about dancing in the streets. Yes. This young you know, about how, how, how Jagger is just always performing. <laughs> And, and Bowie, Bowie is like this line by line, let's re-record it, you know, uh, very meticulously. It's like completely different. Yes, that was very cool. Thing, you know? Yeah, this young kid, you know, suddenly being in charge of it and suddenly go, where's Mick gone? He's like, he's just dancing. Oh, fuck, come back. You know, it's like, it was such a fun <laughs> I know, it was amazing. The world that is the producer. And that is going to be the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much for listening, if you still are. And a big thank you to Andy Blacksugar for giving me the time for that interview. As I said, um, lots of information there. I hope you made notes. I will test you later. But anyway, Blacksugar Transmission, it's all there on uh, bandcamp.com. Um, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And these have all been archived, and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, just do C86 Show. It's all there. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.